But as we celebrate the the Christmas season, we're in a, the third week of our series called Empire. It's it's the advent of the King, where we're celebrating the coming of King Jesus into the world. It's, it leaves a lot of time for reflection. And I mean, really, as I'm thinking about this entire season, I mean, Christmas is a holiday that is um, built on nostalgia, is it not? I mean, it's something where some of the wonder and the anticipation of the season is it comes upon us because memory after memory builds on top of each other. So year after year, it becomes this special time that we can celebrate because everybody has traditions. Everybody has favorites, favorite Christmas movies, right? Christmas Vacation, Elf, right? That's my generation. Everybody has their favorite Christmas songs, Christmas meals, family traditions, all of those things, right? Nostalgia kind of makes those things grow fonder. But there um, is a little bit of danger in thinking about Christmas and Advent in particular as merely just a nostalgic event, right? I mean, if this is, if this is just something, it was a, a fact that happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But if it only remains that for us, I mean, we miss out on a lot of the wonder and the power of Christmas. And so there actually is real power for us as we celebrate the incarnation. And that just means God taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. There's power for our everyday lives. And uh, this morning, as we look at Hebrews 2, we're going to see some of that power on display to help us with some areas that we struggle with time after time. And um, to kind of help us get our minds around that, I want to share a story of a woman named Jill Price. Um, I originally came across this story while reading a book by Mark Batterson called If. And Jill Price is known as the woman who can't forget. Now, for most of us, that sounds kind of like a, a great thing, right? I mean, she has this, it's a, it's a rare medical condition that helps her to have instant recall of every event that's ever taken place in her life. So for us, that would mean not ever losing your car keys, right? Not ever having to look for a pen so that you could write a check. It means like me, you never would lose any of your five kids, right? I mean, there's some positives, right, to having a, a perfect recall. Um, and, and he says this as he was reading the story of Jill. This is, this is how she said it. It became more of a curse instead of a blessing to have full recall. And this should be on the screen for you. Jill said, imagine being able to remember every fight you've ever had with a friend. Every time someone let you down, all the stupid mistakes you've ever made, the meanest, most harmful things you've ever said to people and those they've said to you. Then imagine not being able to push them out of your mind no matter what you've tried. And she goes on to say, As I grew up and more and more memories were stored in my brain and more and more of them flashed through my mind in this endless barrage, I became a prisoner to my memory, right? You don't have to have a photographic memory or perfect recall to be a slave to your memory, do you, right? We all have scenes that are familiar to us 
that remind us of our past failures. And honestly, that this internal prison that we often can live in, it doesn't have to be things that we've done. It just could be things that we're tempted to do, right? We have all of these fears. We have all of these insecurities. We have all of these temptations, and they all tempt us to live as slaves of our interior life. And the good news of Christmas is that Jesus came to set us free from that. Because really, if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it, it just takes just a whisper or a suggestion of something that we have done or something that we're tempted to do. And it tends to isolate us from God and from other people. And we tend to suffer silently. Well, the good news of Hebrews chapter 2 is that God doesn't want us to suffer alone. He wants us to have selective memories when it comes to our past, when it comes to the things that we struggle with. But He wants us to have instant and perfect recall when it comes to what Jesus came to do for us. And so this morning, my prayer is that we would experience the now power of Christmas that actually is more than just a a mere sentiment or a holiday that we celebrate, but there's real power. The same power that broke into the world over 2,000 years ago in the birth of Christ is just as power, just as powerful, and just as vivid for us now this morning to free us as it was on that first Christmas morning. So if you are able, would you stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter 2, We're going to read verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, so much in these moments we want to experience the, the power and the miracle of the Incarnation very personally and very specifically. So I pray that you begin to set your people free through the message of Jesus this morning. 
that we would not be a prisoner of our own memories, that we would not be a slave to fear, that we would not be a slave to the things that were once true of us, but what would define us would be the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness, and the righteousness of Jesus. So to do that, we need you to send the Spirit to help us because we are prone to believe lies. We are prone to disbelieve rather than to believe. I need your help because I know in these moments all I can do is offer my voice, but I pray that somehow your people will hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So I love the book of Hebrews. Um, It is a stunning book. It is a book that is all about Jesus, right? That is our passion as a church. And Hebrews, in some ways, I mean, it's this... Many people believe that Hebrews is a sermon, um, and I'm one of those. I mean, if you read it out loud, it would take you about 45 minutes to get through. And Hebrews just offers argument upon argument about the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of Jesus. And it, it really is, it's not just doctrine that kind of exists in a vacuum, but the goal of the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it at all, is to... Um, elicit faith in our lives, right? Because um, if we're honest with ourselves, we are experts at disqualifying ourselves from the promises of God. Are we not, right? We can find every excuse, right, to say why the things that God has said in his word don't apply to us. Rather, maybe the situation seems too difficult or too remote, Maybe it's our own personal character and we we haven't lived up to the expectations that we have for ourselves. So we disqualify ourselves from the promises of God. But what Hebrews chapter 2 does is begin to give us this wonderful picture of Jesus that's meant to set us free. Like we actually become very comfortable not believing and not walking by faith. But we have to understand from the outset this morning that that faith really is the difference between our perspective being dominated by darkness or being flooded with light. It really is the difference between being overwhelmed and the difference between experiencing peace. Now, biblically speaking, and this is where we can go um, awry a little bit, faith is kind of one of those junk drawer words where uh, it means different things to different people and kind of just throw it around haphazardly. But biblically speaking, faith is a gift from God. Like it comes from outside of us. Faith is supernatural. So for us living in a fallen world, doubt is natural, right? Unbelief is natural. We're, we're naturally going to walk by the things that we see, but God as Jesus is proclaimed and read and treasured and believed upon, he begins to muster up faith in his people to actually believe things are the way that he said they would be. So faith is about seeing the world the way that God sees the world. Faith is about seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. Faith is about seeing Jesus first and foremost speaking for us. And so we're going to see three very powerful pictures in this, these eight verses that are meant to help us and to free us from the slavery that we all experience in our internal life. So what's so 
powerful about fear. And what's so powerful about temptation. And what's so powerful about condemnation is we somehow believe the lie that we are unique, right? That no one can identify with us. That no one struggles the way that we struggle. So we isolate ourselves from other people. Sometimes if we're good, we try to keep a stiff upper lip. But inside, like we're shaken and we crumble, right? So we, we feel like we're unique and no one can identify with us. And it isolates us from one another. But it also causes us to run and cower in fear as we run away from God. So Hebrews chapter 2 is meant to draw us back to the truth of who God is. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is our first point. Who can identify with us in our weakness? Who can identify with us in our fear and our temptations? Jesus came to identify with us as our brother. Look at verses 10 and 11. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Those verses are absolutely stunning. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus, who is described in this passage as the founder of our faith, the one by whom and for whom all things exist, He decided that he was going to not avoid suffering, but he was going to enter into the suffering and the brokenness of this world so that he could identify with you and that he could identify with me as our brother. That is amazing grace, right? Because it is absolutely almost impossible to have a relationship with someone that you don't identify with, right? See, we, what we're talking about here this morning is the humanity of Jesus, right? There, we, we get that Jesus needs to be God because, you know, I mean, he has to be God to save us because our problem is so big. And, and we kind of understand that he had to die for our sins. But if we only focus on his death, right, that, that takes care of our death problem. But it's his life that actually teaches us how to live. And that's why he came to set us free. So we want to marvel at both his godness and his humanity. Now, I want to share this with you, not because of anything other than I want you to be aware of. This is one of the most important statements in church history. Why did Jesus need to be fully God and fully man? A man named Anselm of Canterbury, he said this. He said, But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So the same person must be both God, both man and God. 
So what we're trying to get our hands around is the mystery of the incarnation and experience the power of the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life in our place so that he could identify with us. Let's marvel just for a moment at the humanity of Jesus, what he experienced so that you could identify with him, right? He was despised. Jesus knows what it is like to be despised, right? Who's been despised in this room? Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows what it's like to have his family think that he's crazy, right? Jesus knows what it's like to walk a mile in your shoes. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to bleed and die. And he did all of those things to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you belong to him, that you are brothers and sisters of the king, right? Jesus identifies with you, right? When you are tempted to think that no one else struggles the way that I struggle, look at the truth of Hebrews chapter two. He was tempted in every way, in every respect that you are yet without sin. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus identifies with you. If no one else gets you, no one else understands you. Jesus does. That's the good news of the incarnation. And it is really hard to have a relationship with someone that does not understand you. I remember um, I was converted at age 20. So I grew up here in Arkansas. And I remember kind of just joining a church for the first time. And I, I was a single guy and I was by myself. And I mean, to be honest with you, like I grew up very poor. And so I joined the Navy. And as this church and people began to try to build a relationship with me, right? I mean, I walked into people's houses and I mean, honestly, I'd never seen such opulence before. And I was totally uncomfortable, right? I didn't think that they got where I came from. I didn't think they could identify with me. And so it took a long time as I began to allow people to love me and I began to get to know their stories, to know that they had the same problems and the same struggles that I had. I had to believe that these people could identify with me before I could build a relationship, right? And it's the same thing with Jesus. So, so think about this in the midst of your struggles and your temptations, right? What do we normally think about when we think about Jesus? Like when you go through the same things over and over again, right? Well, I'll tell you the picture that's in my mind. It's usually, he's usually up there with his arms folded, right? Like we've talked about this, right? We've talked about this a number of times. I I would have thought by this point in your life, you would be over this, right? But what this passage says is that Jesus can identify with you, that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus identifies with you because he wants to be able to draw close to you. He doesn't want just some ethereal relationship where it's just smells and bells and whistles. He wants a real, live, living relationship with you that is built on his love and his grace. I've I've mentioned it a couple times. Let's just look at verses 17 and 18. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, if you believe 
that Scripture is inspired. That has to mean something to you personally. He had to be made like you in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what does it mean for him to identify with us? It means he is compassionate towards us. It means he is empathetic towards us. And it means that he is eager to help us. That word help to us kind of means like we do our part and God does his. But really that word help is rescue. He is eager to come and take on flesh and to identify with us because he wants to rescue us from ourselves. That's the good news. Jesus identifies with us as our older brother. We don't have to run away from God. We get to run towards him. And as we believe that he identifies with us, that takes the teeth out of temptation, right? I mean, if you really believe that as you lift up your eyes in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your temptation, and you see a savior that is merciful and faithful and his eyes are full of grace, Like, imagine the next time that you struggle with that thing that's in your mind right now, if you just lifted up your eyes and you imagine Jesus identifying with you. It empties temptation of its power. And that's why he came. He can help us in the midst of our temptation. So what temptation are you facing right now that you are tempted to think defines you? What temptation are you facing that thinks... That, that, that God is tired of you or has turned a deaf ear towards you because you still struggle. Believe the truth of Hebrews chapter 2, that he is merciful and gracious towards you. It also means that he cares about what you care about this morning, right? He's, he's identifying with us as brothers and sisters. That means that he came to carry what you're carrying. So I don't know how you arrived here this morning. I don't know what you brought in this room. I don't know what awaits you next week. But for these moments, it's, it's good and it's right for us to reorient our minds and our hearts and our lives to the truth that he cares about what we care about. Right? That's the good news of the gospel. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, let's move on to point number two. Jesus not only came to identify with us, he also came to represent us as our high priest. Look at verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, You may or may not be aware of the whole history of the Bible. But in the Old Testament, the way that the people of God related to God was through sacrifices and through a high priest. The high priest was the one that represented the people before God. It was the priest and the sacrifices that he offered that that gave the people access to God. Now, that access was limited in the Old Testament because... The sacrifices that were offered were limited, right? So, I mean, you just, I mean, I just try to put myself like 
in, in a Hebrew's shoes this morning. And I thought, like, how crazy that would have to be. Like, if you just went to the priest and you had to offer a sacrifice for your sins, and then, like, you go home and you lose your temper and you've got to go back. Like, you would hope it would be just like the DMV and there would be, like, a speed pass so you could just kind of cut to the front of the line, like if you're a repeat offender like me, right? So you'd have to offer sacrifices. You guys can laugh. That was kind of funny. All right? <laughs> I'm trying, you know. We, we just... We do this every week and we invite some people on. Anyway, so here we are, Old Testament, right? I mean, repeat offenders having to offer sacrifices over and over again for sins, right? But what this passage communicates is Jesus became our high priest. And he, there, there's a word in verse 17. He became the propitiation for our sins. And a simple street definition of propitiation is Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus not only was the high priest that represents us before God, he became the sacrifice that speaks to God on our behalf. So we no longer have to relate to God on the basis of sacrifices. And that means the sacrifices that we do, like where we beat ourselves up for our own sins. You don't have to relate to God like that anymore. That's good news for us this morning. See, in the Old Testament, I won't go too long on this, but there was a curtain that cornered off the presence of God. And extra biblical tradition says that this curtain was as wide as a man's hand. So we're talking four to six inches this way. This curtain would quarter off the presence of God because the presence of God was dangerous, because God was holy and people were not, right? It says outside of biblical literature that 300 horses could not pull this curtain apart. But Jesus, when he gave up his life on the cross, when he breathed his last breath, when he cried out the victory cry, it is finished, that veil was torn from top to bottom. Only God could do that. And he did it to say that we all now have access to God, that the way to God is now open and forever will be open for the people of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so now we don't just have this formal religion where we have to stand far off and offer sacrifices, but we get the good news of drawing near to God, right? That is the highest privilege that exists as a creature on planet earth is that you get to encounter God as he is and be satisfied with him. That's what Christmas is about. God says, I I would rather enter into time and space and suffer for you and with you so that you can have a relationship with me, so that you can draw near. So let us be those kinds of people that draw near to our merciful and our faithful high priest. It brings me to my final point. Jesus came to free us from the slavery of fear. Look at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is impossible for me to overstate how committed God is to dealing with the problem of our fear. God really does not want his people to be afraid. Ever. Verse 15 describes fear as slavery. And what comes into to view in these verses is the source of all fear. All fear finds its source in one fear, and that is the fear of death. You've got to imagine this with me for a moment. Fear and God cannot coexist. The biblical God with the biblical gospel. Fear must redefine who God is. It must say he's not who he says he is. That's the original lie that was believed in the garden. Fear redefines God as not good or not powerful or not wise enough to govern our lives. Fear redefines who God is. And and God wants us to have a rock-solid picture of who he is because he wants to deal with the root of fear in our lives that comes from the fear of death. Martin Luther, when commenting on these verses, says this. He says, All despondency and sadness come from the devil. Right? We don't really like to talk about the evil one, but there, we all experience lies. We all experience condemnation. All despondency and sadness come from the devil, for he is the Lord of death. Especially when a person is sad and afraid as if God were an ungracious God. This is certainly the work of the devil and his machinations. Right? So every aspect of fear that we deal with in our lives, we can trace to this root fear, the fear of death. The good news in these verses is that Jesus came to free us from the slavery of fear by tasting death for us. Jesus gave up his life on the cross to taste and experience on the cross everything for which we are currently afraid because he wants to be able to set us free. See, we are all prone to the slavery of fear. Much of it comes from the enemy that whispers lies of condemnation in our lives. It's almost a constant companion for some of us. The lies of accusation. Revelation chapter 12 defines Satan as the one that accuses day and night before God. Like that's what he does. John chapter 8 describes him as the father of all lies. And so many of us in this room, if we're honest, believe those lies over and over. Christmas is about God setting us free from those lies. I want to tell you the story that I recently read in a book called Every Little Thing. It's the story of Deidre Riggs. And she tells the story of her being a little girl and out front of her house there was this cherry tree. And she, just being a little girl, she, her favorite thing in the world was to go up to that cherry tree and to begin to eat the cherries and kind of let them explode in her mouth and let the juice kind of run down her chin. Like, you can remember when that was cool, right? When you were a little kid. 
That's, that, that was how she spent her summers. Like she loved the cherries that came from this cherry tree. And she, there was like real despondency for her when her father came to her one day and said, you know what, this cherry tree is going to have to go. Something so good had to be taken away. And she didn't understand, well, why in the world are we going to have to get rid of this cherry tree? And um, he tried to explain to her in a way that a little girl could understand that they had carpenter ants. And carpenter ants, they are very small, very tiny, but leave a lot of damage. And so he went to the porch and he pulled off a board and you could kind of see where the carpenter ants had burrowed into the wood. And they were all found their source in this cherry tree. And as older, as she grew older in life, she began to equate that cherry tree with the lies of the enemy and the way that they begin to burrow out courage and faith in our lives. I'm going to read a lengthy quote because I think it's helpful. She says, The language of the enemy is insipid and vile and vacant and void. It will kill your dreams and it will drench you in shame. It will steal your hope and it will destroy your peace. It will keep you from believing the truth about yourself. It will keep you looking down at the ground. How many of us spend our days that way? It will make you think everyone else is better off than you. The comparison game. It will keep you cowering in a filthy old bedsheet, expecting a torrent of stones to rain down upon your head. The lies we tell ourselves, I'm too old, too young, too big, too small, too dark, too light, too new at this whole thing, too messed up, too busy, too bored, too boring, too comfortable, too sinful, too far gone, stand like sentinels between us and the callings God has uniquely designed for us. Like persistent carpenter ants, they destroy our dreams from the inside out, leaving us hollow and doubting we will ever do anything that makes any difference at all. Don't build your life on that kind of foundation. Refusing to let us be weighted down. Here's the good news. By the tangled web of deceit, Jesus took the blame. He walked up to the liar-in-chief, took your shame, and wrote his own name on it. Whether it is that thing that makes you too filthy, Christ has already paid the price for it. The punishment that has been rendered and we have been set free. God is not the one who tricks us into thinking we're so far gone, there is no way back. He doesn't measure the significance of our lives by the highlights alone. If you've been thinking you're past the point of no return, take a good look at the message and consider the source. So, for us, Christmas is about untangling the lies that we have believed so long about ourselves and about our God. He came to set us free from the slavery of fear. He came to set us free from the slavery of condemnation. He came to set us free from the slavery of sin and death by tasting death for everyone in this room that will believe on Him. If you will believe on him, you will be set free. So I want to encourage you, if you have never experienced that kind of freedom, to cast yourself wholly on the Savior that identifies with you as your brother. To cast yourself totally on that Savior that represents you as the high priest and experience the freedom that he died and that he tasted so that you would be set free. That's what Christmas is all about. 
It's not just about nostalgia, but it's about us beginning to believe in faith that what God says is true about Jesus is true for us, no matter what we have experienced in our past, no matter what we're going through in the present, and no matter what we'll face in the future. God came to set us free so that we would know joy, right? That's the good news of the incarnation. Just take a moment just to pray as I invite the band to come forward. We're going to continue to worship. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he identifies with us. Thank you that he represents us. Thank thank you that he came to set us free. Um, I pray very specifically now for those that have been believing a specific lie for a long period of time that you would break that lie on the cross of Jesus Christ and that people would be set free. I pray that you help them to lift up their eyes to the hills from where their help comes and to see Jesus merciful and faithful pleading for them and interceding for them. And I pray that Christmas would have a whole new meaning for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.